Welcome to this episode of Pirate Recap presented by WSU Sports, where today we'll, we will be discussing the CN Hall men's basketball team from the 21-22 season. Again, this is here on WSU Sports. I'm Jonathan Height, and joined alongside by me today is the great Ryan Henry and Ryan Johnston. So guys, before we dive deep into the entire season and preview a little bit of next season, how are you both doing? I'm doing splendid, John Height. Uh, you know, get to talk some basketball. You know, very exciting season last year, and I'm excited even more for this year. A lot of turnover, and I'm ready to get into it. It's always a great day when I get to see Ryan Henry and Jonathan Height in the same day, even if it's virtually. So uh, I'm very excited. I am as well, and we'll have two shows together between the three of us and Louis Pasquale later tonight for our NHL Game 2 preview show, the Stanley Cup Final. But for right now, it's all things seen Hall men's basketball and last season was definitely a tale of multiple seasons in one, in my opinion. Um, a lot of highs, definitely a bunch of lows, but we're going to break down the entire schedule that they had, all the results of games, our opinions on all the biggest topics from that last season, um, some storylines that came out of it, the players, and then also, again, looking forward to the future for the 2022-2023 season, which will be starting just a few months from now. So, guys, let's start beginning of last season where the Pirates, you know, always have their non-conference schedule, as all teams in Division One do. And it definitely was a difficult schedule, to say the least. But I want to start with their first major challenge, because starting off this season, they, de- they defeated Meister Cordia. They blew them out in, in an expedition game. And then they defeated Fairleigh Dickinson and Yale. Two good wins, but two obviously not to the caliber of opponents that they, that they play later on. And their first big win, their statement win, was at the time defeating number 4 Michigan in Ann Arbor. On November 16th, again, this was in 2021, where they defeated the Wolverines 67 to 65, upsetting, you know, a, a top five team in the country. At the time, it led to the Pirates being ranked, and it was just a, a, such a great night, despite Michigan not having a great rest of the season, but still, you know, having a big tournament appearance and everything. But at, throughout the rest of the regular season, the the quality of that win, I guess, diminished a little bit, but it was still a huge win at the time, and because of the history of the two teams. So, guys, I'll start with you, Ryan Henry. I'll, I'm going by first and last name because you're both named Ryan, of course. Um, so, Ryan Henry, give me your thoughts about that game. What did the Pirates do to, to come away with a victory? And just your emotions and where were you that night? Because I know for the Pirates faithful, it'll be a win we'll always remember. So, I mean, I mean, like you said, it was an amazing game. I think they were actually, if I remember correctly, one of two teams to win a game on the road against a top five opponent. And, I mean... The vibes at the time were immaculate. I was uh, in my room watching it, the uh, the igloo, as we like to call it. But it was a great time. I mean, close game, 67-65. It was, I think at one point, if I remember correctly, they were down by like 8 or 10 in the second half. So we really weren't sure what was going to happen there. But, I mean, you know, it was kind of a it was kind of a slugfest of a game. You know, both teams shot under 40% from the field. And I just remember, you know, that that game really propelled uh, expectations to what I thought they were able to do because, you know, Michigan last year or, you know, last year, 2020, 2020-2021 were in the final four. They had, a, they had a solid tournament run this season. And to go into Ann Arbor, that was a statement win. I thought some – and it was really a statement win, and it helped them kind of get in the tournament because, you know, people were always looking back at, you know, while they had the up and down, and we'll talk about it later – that win against Michigan was so huge in propelling them into tournament status. And I remember after the game, I mean, everyone was hype. I remember listening to Hallline and Michael Daly was, you know, 
quoting Ric Flair. You know, everyone was screaming in Xavier. It was just a great time. One of the best wins I've seen at a scene hall, and it really solidified their tournament chances later on that year because of how huge that win was. Yeah, that was a really, really special night. And and like you said, Ryan, it wasn't even because Michigan ended up being that great of a team. It was just because of how everyone stacked the odds against Seton Hall going in. Uh, I remember after the the players were just screaming roadkill, uh, not only just because of the the odds stacked against them, but because of the history, like you mentioned, John, getting revenge for that 1989 uh, NCAA tournament final. And uh, I felt like this one meant a little bit more to Seton Hall fans. And I was watching that game with Ryan, actually, at the time. And uh, everyone was ecstatic. You could hear people screaming outside uh, on campus, just running around. Everyone, uh, that was probably the most lively I, I, I've seen, Hall, seen Seton Hall's campus, at least in a long time. Um, yeah, it, it was a special, special night and a special, special game uh, for a team that, was down for most of that game. They really bought, battled back, uh, had to fight and scratch and claw to get that win. So very, very big game and definitely helped them moving forward in the season. It was a legendary night. And going back to the stats of that game, Jared Roden had 16 and Bryce Aiken hit, I believe it was like the biggest shot of the game. It was a three, I remember, towards the, the latter stages of the second half that helped the Pirates um, get the win. And as for me, I was engineering that night um, hall line. So I heard Michael Daly and Wilner Lewis, you know, have the happiest hall line I've ever heard. You know, obviously there were plenty of sad and depressing ones this year after some of the tough losses, but that was definitely the, the most, just the happiest one. Just because the Pirates, it was their first ever win over a top five AP ranked non-conference team on the road in their program history. So to show you the magnitude of that win, um, but it was a great night. It put the Pirates on the map for this season and, you know, at this point, you know, it was very, very early on, but to be able to knock down a team like that, like that um, it really did a long way for the resume, as you mentioned, Ryan Henry. So then after that, the Pirates, you know, at that point were still undefeated, even though it was a very small sample size. They won four out of their next five games. They would lose to Ohio State in the Rocket Mortgage Fort Myers tip-off. They, it was a very tough game. I believe it was Michi Johnson, the guy, the guy's name from Ohio State. He hit the game-winning three, so they lost 79 to 76. They defeated Cal 62 to 59, and then they played a couple of tune-up games against Bethune Cookman, Wagner, and Nyack College, which was at Walsh Gym, of course. And then after that were two absolutely huge wins. Um, besides the Michigan win, it was the two biggest non-conference wins they had, and also really helped their resume come NCAA tournament time. They defeated number seven, Texas, on December 9th, 64 to 60 at home. Um, that was an electric atmosphere. And December 12th, a Sunday the against Rutgers, the Harvard Classic was back, and they really took care of business against the Scarlet Knights. They defeated them 77 to 63. So at that point, the Pirates were absolutely rolling. They only had one loss to the resume heading into Big East play. And obviously their Iona game and MSG that, Fun fact, me and Joe Matthews, our producer, were supposed to do, but, you know, whatever, it's over now. But they only had one loss heading into Big East play. But I just want to talk about those uh, Rutgers and Texas games real quick. We'll start with you, Ryan Johnston. I want to get your analysis from those two games. How are they able to defeat another top 10 team at the time in Texas? Um, and Rutgers, which is always their, arguably one of their toughest games of the season. It'll always be like that because it's a New Jersey team and their rival. Um, so just recap those games from your eyes and your experiences from those two nights as well. Yeah, starting off, I just got to touch on that Ohio State game because 
that was a lucky shot by Michi Johnson. All right. That three was not going in. He he got lucky on that one. Okay. I, I just had to throw it out there. I, I was not feeling that three. I thought it was a lucky shot. But moving forward to Texas, you know, that was a tough Texas team. And they were probably Seton Hall's best win of the entire year because they stayed at a high level for throughout the entire year. I mean, this was a team like, what were they, a fifth seed in the NCAA tournament? They really showed their stuff all year long, and and Seton Hall gave them a big roadblock, and a big way that they did it was limiting Texas on the outside. Texas only shot one for 13 from three-point range. Seton Hall, granted, wasn't much better at five for 21, but that was kind of to be expected throughout the whole year because Seton Hall was just kind of atrocious. We were we were a terrible three-point shooting team all year long, which was surprising to me given the talent that the team had, but... It was really the big shot by Bryce Aiken at the end. Uh, that's what did it. His one three-pointer to ice the game. He gave Seton Hall that cushion that they needed. And um, that was another great night. I mean, early on in the season, we had a lot of great nights. And these are two of the best nights that you can have. Moving on to Rutgers, uh, a bit more of a comfortable win. It, obviously, it was a very intense game throughout. Uh, but Seton Hall shot well from the foul line. Ironically, they... Also shot five for 21 again from three. Again, they really could not shoot behind the arc to save their lives this year, but it didn't matter in these two games. Uh, Seton Hall was just the better team throughout. Bryce Aiken, again, finishing with 22 points against Rutgers. He was the catalyst for these two wins. Yeah, they, they just did a great job defending, and Bryce Aiken took over on the offensive end when he needed to. Yeah, and it's interesting because you meant we'll talk about this a bit later, but Bryce Aiken early on in the season was so huge down the stretch because he's a guy that you can give the ball to and he can get you a bucket at any time. You know, I feel like that was an issue, and we'll touch a bit more as we go later in the year. But the presence Bryce Aiken had in that Michigan game, the Texas game, and the Rutgers game, it was huge because, you know, if there was ever a straight stretch, like a three, four minute stretch where Seen Hall was in a drought, you, you can give the ball to Bryce Aiken and he can work, he can work his magic. And create something out of nothing. And he was huge in both those games. Bryce Aiken had the big shot against Texas. And, you know, like you said, Ryan Johnson, Texas was one of the more consistent teams the entire year. Picked up a, I think, five or six, like you said. And just getting these those two wins added onto the resume was huge. And it really showed the ceiling that this Pirates team had where they can go toe-to-toe with some of the best teams in the entire country. But the real issue was that they could never stay consistent. But... That Texas win was huge. I mean, the Rutgers win, while it wasn't a, you know, close game, it was the energy and atmosphere because it was the first time Ruck, the Seton Hall played Rutgers in, I believe, three, two, three years, I, I want to say. And, you know, it's always a fierce rivalry between those two schools and both huge wins. And it really set them up going into conference play, only losing one game against Ohio State team. And they uh, they lost to Ohio State by three points, and Miles Kale was hurt for half of that game. And Michi Johnson hit a lucky shot, but... You know, come back to what I was saying, Bryce Aiken, huge for the Pirates beginning at half of the year, and he was really the reason why they started off so hot. Yeah, Bryce Aiken, again, we'll dive deep into this in just a few minutes, but Bryce Aiken was a player for the Pirates that they could always rely on in the winding stretches of a game and feel comfortable with having a player just contribute some big offense when they needed it the most. We saw it against Michigan, like you mentioned. Um, Texas Rutgers as well, he had a great game, and he was named MVP of the, the Garden State Classic as well. And, you know, even in that Texas game 
And another thing I want to mention, but in addition to the Texas game and everything, is that their defense was also very, very efficient at that point. Um, I, you look at the headline on Scene Hall's website, they stifled number seven Texas. And like you mentioned, Ryan Johnson, you know, holding these teams to really inefficient shooting from behind the arc. And this was a game where we saw every player was stepping up at this point, too, in addition to Bryce Aiken um, outside of clutch time. Jared Roden had 18. Alexis Yetna was getting double-doubles. And at the time against Texas, at the time, only three teams had two top 10 wins at that point in the season. It was Duke, Gonzaga, and Cian Hall. So that shows you the kind of territory the Pirates were in. And, you know, morale was high. Everything was just so high at that point. You know, the Pirates were just on cloud nine. And people were even talking about, you know, NCAA tournament. Could they make a run because they've already beaten, you know, a number four team, a number seven team. But then things kind of went south. Well, not kind of. They did go south. Um, they had the unexpected COVID-19 pause, so they lost their, their Iona game on December 18th, which would have been six days after the Rutgers game. And their games a little bit after that were in jeopardy, but they did end up facing number 21 Providence. Ryan Johnston knows very well what happened that game, and we'll talk about that in just a sec. But after that, the team felt different for a while, and it seemed like some things were out of their control at that point because they were having guys come off the COVID list you know, against Providence and Villanova, you know, those those two games, they, they had just players. They had like seven players on the bench one game, I believe, the Providence game, because I was there as well. There were seven or eight players that, that were even available, and they only ran a seven-man rotation. So just things out of their control started happening. But the, after the COVID pause, you know, they played Providence, Villanova, two ranked teams, 21 and 20, uh, number 21 and number 22, lost to both. Then they defeated Butler on the road. Uh, the OT Thriller versus UConn, where people were, I believe, were almost back at that point and on the roster after COVID. Defeated Butler on the road again. Um, was pardon me. They defeated Butler on the road before UConn, and then they lost to Paul. Joe Matthews remembers that game, and then the Marquette game with Bryce Aiken getting hurt. But my question to you guys is: We'll start with you, Ryan Henry. When the team was going through all the the difficult adversity at that point, with just having players in and out of the lineup, um, just not enough players sometimes it seemed like to even be dressed for a game, but they were still playing. Um, how did the Pirates respond in some of those games, including the wins and the losses? What do you remember from that? Um, and what did it show you about just the identity of this team at that point in the season? So, yeah, you mentioned that they had this COVID stretch uh, end of December, beginning of January. And I remember after the Providence and Villanova game, you know, obviously they lost both those games, but I was confident, still confident in the Pirates because – they lost to Providence on the road at five. They were one of the best home teams in the entire country. They had a Sweet 16 run in the tournament, and they lost by five, like you said, with a seven-man rotation without Ike Obiagi, without Tyree Samuel. And then they also lost to Villanova, who made the Final Four. They lost six games. They were running a seven-man rotation. So, you know, very close games to two of the best teams in the entire country, and you're only running seven seven-man rotations. I was confident, and then... You know, the Butler win obviously solidified that. And then that huge game against UConn, which was the Kadari Richmond breakout game. I mean, I think he had a double-double, led the team in scoring. And so at this point, I was still confident. And then the DePaul loss was just unfortunate. And then once we got to Marquette and Bryce Aiken got injured, I, that's, I, that's when I think the wheels really started to fall off. Yeah, it was definitely a rough stretch. Talking about that Providence game, I mean... They were coming off a 17-day break because of COVID. Everyone just looked rusty to start out. And Providence was coming off a break, too. Honestly, the first half was ugly basketball. Neither team looked good at all. 
but in the end, it was just Nate Watson. He was too big inside. Uh, Trey Jackson and Alexis Yetna, they they both did pretty well against him, but they got tired towards the end, and uh, he just took over the game, really. And Noah, Noah Horkler had, like, the best night of his career. Dude went, like, five for five from three or something like that. It was absolutely ridiculous. And then against Nova, again, like, like Ryan said, this is one of the best teams in the country. This is a team that Seton Hall has struggled against historically, especially these past few seasons. Not a bad loss, especially when you're down guys, but moving forward, it just seemed like they kind of lost their groove after that COVID pause because losing to teams like DePaul, letting DePaul score 96 points, like that is horrendous. That's not a high school basketball or college basketball score. 96 to 92 is ridiculously high. And especially against a team like DePaul. Granted, DePaul was a pretty fast paced team, but they weren't good. <laughs> they lost most of their games. I think they only won three games in the Big East Conference. And having one of those wins come against you, that's no fun any day of the week. Uh, the UConn game was a good win. Butler was a good win. And Marquette, when. Bryce Aiken got that concussion, and I don't remember who the Marquette player was, but I remember the play so clearly. He swung into Bryce Aiken's head, and Bryce Aiken got called for the foul on the shot, and that's why Seton Hall lost the game. I can't think of a more deflating moment all season long. Our best player gets injured and is out for the rest of the season, and we lose the game on a bad call. That was absolutely egregious, and uh, yeah, certainly... Certainly a rough stretch right there. And the Providence and Villanova games, I'll say one more thing about that. They were two very winnable games despite the circumstances, which you have to actually give some credit to the Pirates there. Ryan, you remember the Providence game. I think they cut the lead to three at one point in the second half. But again, Noah Horkler had the game of his life that game. Um, Kadari Richmond, I think, was like on and off. I remember from, for most of that. It was just tough because... Again, the, the the dunk in Rhode Island was one of the toughest places to play in all of college basketball. And Providence, as we know, ended up you know winning the Big East regular season title. So they just made in their, their names out of just winning at these big games at home. So the Pirates just, it was, they couldn't overcome enough adversity in that game. Then the Villanova game, uh, my birthday game, I'll, I'll never forget this game. It was still one of the most fun environments I've ever uh, been to and I've actually commentated. That was another winnable game. Um, I remember, especially in the beginning of that second half, there were many times I thought the Pirates, which, and they did go on a run, I thought they were going to um, eventually catch up to Villanova just because Villanova looked kind of shaky in that game. Um, Eric Dixon, that was a player on Villanova that just had a huge game, and he ended up having a good rest of the season. That was sort of his breakout performance, one of them at least. And then, like you mentioned, after that, the Butler and UConn wins were big, especially the UConn win, um, that, that OT, the, the OT victory where they only won by three. And one of the biggest plays in Jared Roden's career was that the game-winning steal in that game, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, the DePaul loss was definitely deflating. Um, we talked about how good their defense was during those big non-conference wins. Everything just seemed like the complete opposite in that game, uh, giving up almost 100 points at DePaul. And then the Marquette game, obviously, was the other part of the season where, again, everything started shifting because you lost Bryce Aiken. Um, and we're going to talk about in just a sec how they ended up winning nine out of their last 13 after that, but still, we, we, we in hindsight, we look back now at the Big East tournament and the NCAA tournament, having Bryce Aiken, it could have been a completely different story. Um, so Bryce Aiken gets hurt in the Marquette game. Ryan Johnson, you elegantly described what happened. 
Anyway, so after that, the Pirates were left wondering, you know, their best score, their best closeout score was now out. But the Pirates were still able to win nine of the last 13, like I just mentioned. And they actually won five straight games heading into the Big East tournament. Um, just kind of crazy when you look back on just because losing your, your best score, they still finished pretty strong at the end of the regular season. They had some tough losses here and there. Um, winning at MSG against St. John's was great, but losing and getting blown out in the Walsh game was definitely brutal against St. John's 84 to 63 on January 24th. Um, they d- defeated Xavier twice. Um, one of those is actually probably my favorite game of the season, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And then defeating Creighton on the road to end the season was awesome as well, especially because Creighton would, would do so great in the Big East tournament. So my question to you guys is, they had this pretty positive stretch when you look back on it going 9-4. and four. Um, I want you both to give your thoughts about the bigger wins, like I I've, I've kind of mentioned and some I'm missing, and the tough losses. How do the Pirates look without Bryce Aiken? And what did Coach Kevin Willard and the rest of the team kind of do in terms of strategy to try to somewhat recover some offense that's now lost when you don't have Bryce Aiken in your lineup? So, Ryan, Ryan you can go. Sorry. No, it's all good. It, uh, <laughs> The thing, Kevin Willard just had to completely rework the offense, essentially. You know, Bryce Aiken was such a huge piece. He now had to find someone to get the the touches that Bryce Aiken would have, especially in ISO, because Bryce Aiken would go ISO so consistently and uh, still find a way to score. That's what he was so good at. I mean, he wasn't the most efficient scorer, but he was so good at scoring from ISO. And with that, he created opportunities for others. He He gave other space to get the ball and make plays. Now that he was gone, Kevin Willard had to find other players to put the ball into that the, put the ball into the hands of, I should say. And it really largely fell on Kadari Richmond. He became a huge centerpiece of the offense moving forward. And we saw growing pains in that in those St. John's games. St. John's pressed the heck out of him in that home game in Walsh. He turned the ball over, I think it was eight times or something like that, seven or eight times in that St. John's game. It was ugly it was it was frankly ugly and the marquette game was more of the same they just pressed him and he couldn't deal with it at the time but as games as the season progressed more games happened uh he started to get more comfortable he had a very nice performance against villanova i remember commentating that game with ronnie jerez r.i.p the goat ronnie jerez you know always in our thoughts after he graduated but um he looked very good in that game very solid uh, Jameer Harris started getting things going a little bit more towards the end of the season, too. He started to find himself a role within the offense, and they looked really good. And, John, I don't want to steal your thunder here about that Xavier game, but that was probably my favorite game of the season, too, just because they looked like they were having fun playing basketball. They were actually making their three-pointers. They shot eight for 19 from three. They were pushing the pace. They were defending against a good Xavier team. Granted, they didn't have the best end of the regular season, ended up missing the NCAA tournament, but they won the NIT. This is clearly a Xavier team that was talented and showed that they were talented in postseason play. And the Pirates, they went on a big run to end the season. They they really did. They started figuring things out, and uh, it looked like their system was working for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I will say, I want to touch on your point about Kadari Richmond. He A lot of the pressure really did fall onto him. I mean, John Rune got a couple more touches, Jameer Hashem a bit more. But like you said, Kadari Richmond was really thrusted into the starting lineup and was thrust into that role of being the primary ball handler and initiator on the offense. And while there was some great moments, especially as a playmaker in the open court, 
as a scorer, he did struggle in moments, and I felt like, you know, sometimes he was maybe overthinking it or just forgot to make the right play, and we saw him develop a bit, and it'll be something to also keep track of going into next season, but, you know, it's interesting. We saw that they went on a five-game win streak to end the season, but the the teams they played weren't really, you know, the grace. You know, they 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 barely beat DePaul, which was a good game. I was able to comment. I was able to commentate with John McCooch. Great game to watch. But I mean, two points against a, a DePaul team that was struggling is not good. They kept it close to the Butler. Xavier in Cincinnati was a nice blowout, and then Georgetown was a five-point game. And then obviously winning in Creighton is huge. But the games that I felt they were supposed to win during the stretch, the you know, the games that could have solidified them either as a contender or a pretender, I felt like they always just came up short against. I mean, they lost again at Villanova. They lost at UConn. The St. John's game was just horrendous. I mean, the they got blown out by 20 points in Walsh Gymnasium, and then Kevin Willard had, I think, one of the worst excuses for a loss I've ever seen, saying that, you know, the gym was the reason why they lost in a 20-point game, which was completely absurd. And... They also lost to Marquette again by 10 points. And then you're looking at this stretch where they did have some, they did win nine out, nine out of 13 in the year, but they didn't really have that statement win. The closest thing you could probably say was at Creighton, but I just felt like the games they absolutely need to win this to really re-solidify themselves as a top team in the country, they just fell short. Yeah, and Ryan Henry, I'm going to agree and disagree at the same time with your point because like like you mentioned, they really could have lost that DePaul game at home. I mean, they only won by two. Uh, the Butler game, like we also mentioned, it was close. They won by six, I believe, and Butler stormed back in that one after the Pirates started off pretty strong. Um, but I think at the same time, just being able to take care of business towards the end of the season against these teams, because if we remember last season, the 2020-21 uh, to 21 season, the end of the season, they lost like six or seven straight, which resulted in them not making the NCAA tournament when they had a, a pretty surefire lock um, towards the, the early part of January and even February. So at this point, at least the Pirates were able to win those games. But at the same time, like you mentioned, they weren't resounding wins um, with the exception of a few. Um, that Xavier game um, at, in Cincinnati, I had the pleasure of going with Ben Harris. And actually, Ryan Johnson, this was the game I was referring to as my favorite game in terms of um, just – them just blowing out a big rival on the road in a very hostile atmosphere. Um, but that home Xavier game was also huge at the time, too, because Xavier was ranked at that point, I believe, number 25. Um, when they played at Cincinnati, they were unranked, but it was still Xavier won the NIT, and it was just a, a great atmosphere. And losing at UConn was another game I thought was um, very winnable because UConn played great, but at the same time, Seen Hall was really holding their own for most of that game. And again, I was at that game with Michael Stamm in Connecticut, and you could just feel like the, the wheels were falling off a little bit towards the end. Um, another hostile atmosphere, and UConn just was able to close the game out. Adama Sinogo and RJ Cole both killed them in that game. Um, and like the Ab Villanova game you talked about, Ryan, I know you and Ronnie Jerez, you guys did a great job. That game, towards the, the middle of it at least, um, it was close for a while, but Villanova shows why they're just one of the best teams in the country year, uh, year in and year out. Um, but regardless, the Pirates were able to, again, advance to the NCAA tournament in hindsight. Um, but we're going to talk about the Big East tournament first because they faced two opponents. They entered the, the tournament as a number six seed. So in round number one, they faced off against the number 11 Georgetown Hoyas, who did not have a conference win the entire season. And they barely, and I mean barely, defeated them on March 9th 
2022. They defeated them 57 to 53. The epitome of an ugly game, but doesn't matter. A Big East win is a Big East win. They'll take it. They advanced to the next round a day later against this UConn Huskies team that they pulled off a stunner at home, lost a tough one on the road, but they just were outplayed again by UConn. And this was a much better performance from UConn in this game as opposed to even their home win. They defeated the Pirates by 10, 62 to 52. UConn was number three seed at the time. So, guys, I want both of your thoughts from their entire Big East tournament run or mini runs. It was only two games. Um, what did you see out of the Georgetown win? Why was it so close? And did they have a, a realistic shot of actually defeating the number three UConn Huskies? Ryan Henry, we'll start with you. Okay, so going with the Georgetown game, and I think this was the reason why they lost their UConn game as well. They were just getting dominated on the glass. Got out-rebounded by 14 rebounds in that Georgetown game. Allowed 21 offensive rebounds. And I think, and while we talk about Bryce Aiken's absence being a reason why, you know, the season kind of started trending downward, I think another reason why we haven't really touched a whole lot about this. The play we saw out of the big men really, like, was not as, I'm trying to find the right word. It it wasn't as good. I'm trying to think of a better word, but it just it was wasn't where it needed to be. Yeah, it wasn't where it needed to be. That's that's what I'm looking for. It wasn't where it needed to be. You know, I you talk about Eric Dixon in Villanova dominating that game. Adame Sanogo in his two regular season games against the Pirates. I felt like Tyree Samuel really struggled after he got COVID. I don't know what it was. Maybe he had a bad case and he really wasn't able to fully recover. I felt like he was so huge in the first half of the season, really struggled after he got COVID. Aiko Biagu had his moments, but... I he couldn't really stand out as a rebounder despite his size. And then I felt like Alexis Yenna was the only one who maybe from game in, game out, you knew what you were going to get from him. While the other three, it was just so inconsistent on how you're going to get. And I felt like they were getting dominated in a lot of these games. And it was part of the reason why they struggled so much to end the season. And so that's, you know, Georgetown, I think the town alone of the Pirates was able to elevate them. Like they probably should have lost that game based on, just, you know, the way Georgetown was winning, like dominating and out hustling them. But it really showed in UConn that you have to win on the margins against really good teams. And they just couldn't do that. And they really struggled doing that. And I think part of the reason why was that big man play was so inconsistent for the Pirates this season. Yeah, I got the the privilege to go to MSG and watch these games in person with uh, Pirate TV, and it was just so frustrating to watch because they all look so lethargic out there. And I think a big part of why it was so frustrating is like you guys were talking about with the rebounds because we literally just could not get a board to save our life, it felt like. It, it was just so frustrating against a Georgetown team. I mean, they had two of their three closest conference games of the season against us. This Georgetown team went 0-19 in conference play, guys. They didn't win a single game in Big East play. They won six games on the year, and they played two. They probably should have beat us, realistically. They probably should have beat us in the Big East tournament. We were lucky to get out of the Big East tournament with one win, in my opinion, last year. It was just, it was hard to watch at times. It really was. And I, I get that we grinded out the win, and that was great, but it was clear how just the attitude, it felt like it shifted. Like, the players just didn't care as much. I don't know. It, it, it just seemed like they were out there going through the motions at time at times against UConn. Um, Alexis Yetna, again, he got 11 boards. 
against Georgetown, I, I believe, and then uh, against UConn, Aiko Biagu was our, our leading rebounder. Or, excuse me, that was TCU. That was later on. But um, we, we, are, we had three players with six rebounds against UConn. Not, not a single player in double figures. I don't know. It's just that game, those two games were so frustrating to me because it felt like we had end, ended the season with so much momentum. Uh, that game against Creighton was a huge win on the road, and, and we looked really strong going into the Big East tournament. And then the, it's like someone pulled the brakes, the emergency brakes on the train. It, it, it just stopped. Everything stopped. And uh, it, it was so frustrating to watch. It really was frustrating. And this was a team dating back to, to the night after Rutgers. I think if if you, again, we're looking at it in hindsight, but if you look at it, the fact that so many things just went wrong towards the the, the rest of the regular season, despite going nine and four in their last thirteen, um, it's always going to be a big what if. What if the COVID pause didn't happen? But then at the same time, pretty much every program in the country was facing a COVID pause at, at one point. But what if Bryce Aiken was able to play the rest of the season? You know, would he have been able to you know, pull out another huge performance in that UConn Big East tournament game? So there were a lot of what ifs from this season, unfortunately, which is a part of the lows on, from this entire season as well. But this leads us into the last low of the season, which was the NCAA tournament, where the number eight seeded Seen Hall Pirates, you know, were back in the tournament after missing out last year. Um, they faced number nine TCU, so they technically were the higher seed uh, out in sunny San Diego. Our former, our two former sports directors, Heaven Hill and Wonder Lewis, traveled all the way to the West Coast for a game. The Pirates just were completely outmatched, outplayed. They lost sixty-nine to forty-two. Not a lot of positives out of that one. It was just a very disappointing game. Um, as a Pirates fan, just being dead honest, that was the one game I think that I can remember that I just wanted to turn off towards the, the, the latter part of the second half. I just it was just so sad because we knew what this team, like what this team's potential was at the beginning of the season after the Rutgers game, um, how much talent they had, and credit to TCU, they were a great team. They gave Arizona the one seed to run for their money. And as many people were imagining, seeing Hall as the team giving Arizona that that sort of scare in the second round ended up being TCU. But both of you guys, give me your reactions from the game. Why were the Pirates just so outmatched in that game? What did TCU do also? Um, vice versa, what did they do to just, just outmatch the Pirates and, and led to this unfortunate blowout loss? Man, Hall line was brutal that night let me tell you hall line was brutal everyone was calling for uh kevin willard's head and uh yeah it it was just a it was an embarrassing performance i don't think there's any other way to put it i mean we shot 28 percent from the field tcu was just running circles around us it, it felt like i wanted to turn it off too but it, it was one of those things that you just you can't look away from mike miles kind of cooked us he had 21 points tcu played a good game of basketball they they really did uh and we didn't <laughs> we had a terrible night shooting in uh, at all levels we couldn't hit a field goal we couldn't hit a three-pointer we couldn't hit a free throw they out rebounded us uh we had more fouls than them we had 16 turnovers to their 13 it was just they did literally everything better than us that night. There was not a single thing that we did better than them. Uh, and it was, like you said, John, it was a disappointing end to a, a team that had so much potential earlier in the season. And uh, it, it felt like most of that potential wasn't realized. 
And I think that's why it was such a hard night for, for so many Seton Hall fans. Yeah, it was really the culmination of everything that went wrong this entire season. They, you know, we, there was a lot of concerns about the Pirates going into this tournament, but there were, you know, we saw that potential early in the year and, and people were saying, you know, if they can catch fire, maybe they can make, make it to the second weekend, maybe even further, you know, March it is, anything can happen, but it was the culmination of everything that was wrong about this season for the Pirates was just wrong. They couldn't buy a shot to save their life because they didn't have Bryce Aiken. Kadari Richmond, as an initiator, really struggled this game. Six turnovers. They got out-rebounded, out-dominated in the paint. They, everything that could have went wrong, went wrong. They struggled shooting from behind the arc. And it's interesting because I remember, and I, I don't know if you guys remember this, literally after the game happened, not even two hours there were reports already saying that Kevin Willard was going to Maryland. And there was the quote from there was the quote on the press game in the postgame presser basically saying, Shaheen Holloway can have my job. And you know, I'm not entirely sure what happened to end the season. I don't know if he already had his mind set on Maryland and the players could just feel it or maybe he has mindset on leaving. But it you know, they just looked completely checked out, completely zoned out. And it was the culmination of everything that went wrong. And I think it was necessary because this team really needed a restart. And this was the best way to kind of jumpstart the program and get a new foundation set. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Henry brought up two really good points right there. Just the fact that it was really a disappointment in so many ways. And a lot of the problems that they were having, all of it was exposed on national TV for that game, unfortunately. And, like, at the same time, though, it did lead into this new era, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes of Seton Hall basketball. Obviously, Kevin Willard did leave for Maryland and Shaheen Holloway, who, at the same time, while everyone was so down in South Orange that Seton Hall got blown out in the first round, their future head coach literally made it to the Elite Eight with a team that, again, should have had no business making it that far, but they went on the run of a lifetime defeating Kentucky and Purdue and all these great teams. And, you know, at the same time, it— Provided so much hope for the future for Seton Hall. So, real quick, before we talk about a few individual players from this season, I just want to ask both of you, what was your favorite game this year in two categories? One, and one that you covered, like as a broadcaster, even, you know, you guys are both big PTV guys as well, maybe in PTV, WSU, doesn't matter. And then one is, I'm going to say a quote-unquote fan, just one that you that you watched. It could even be the same one that you broadcasted, but I just want to give you two options here. Because there were a lot of great memories from this season. And especially, this was the first somewhat normal season after COVID. You know, the 2020 season, there were no fans this year. There were fans at every game, despite the COVID pauses. So, give me your two games from this season that you'll always remember in, in this regard. So, I'll give... I'll first start with, you know, fan experience. I think the best fan experience had to be that Texas game. I mean, the the stadium or the arena was electric. I... It was one of the loudest sporting venues I'd ever been at, just in terms of, like, how loud it was. And I was getting into it. I'd lost my voice. And I remember after the game, uh, I gave a big hug to our news director and fellow WSU sports member, John McCooch. It was just an immaculate, you know, game to be at as a fan. I mean, the energy was high. Everyone was screaming. It was intense to be in that environment. And I remember the Texas players and coaches in the – Pre- post-game presser talking about how 
insane it was to be going to that crowd. So as a fan, I think that takes the cake. And as a broadcaster, out of the games I was able to cover, I think that game against DePaul was really enjoyable. It was a very close game. I remember, you know, me and John had a good, had a great, you know, broadcast in general. It was a very close game. So I think that really sticks out as a broadcaster. But I think those are my two standout games from a fan perspective and a broadcaster perspective. Um, as a fan, I'd have to go with either like that game we mentioned before. I was talking about that away game, John, uh, the away game at Xavier. Uh, that was a lot of fun to watch. Also, Michigan, just because of how electric it was on campus. Uh, no one was at that game because it was so far away. So everyone was on campus watching it. And uh, it was one of the most fun vibes I've ever experienced on campus. Um, as a broadcaster, I, I'd have to go one of two. I don't think I called, I didn't call the Rutgers game, uh, but I covered it and that was a lot of fun. Uh, Ryan said the Texas game was one of the loudest he'd ever heard in arena. I think Rutgers was equally as loud and uh, just the added element of it being the Garden State rivalry uh, was just so cool to me and seeing Miles Kale, Wilner Lewis took a great picture of Miles Kale hosting that trophy after the game was over and that was a I think a great moment in the season for me, uh, especially covering. And also uh, the away game at Villanova because just going to Wells Fargo and being able to call uh, a game there is one of the coolest experiences I've ever had Um, because I've gone to games there. I've been going to games there since I was like six years old uh, watching Sixers. I I watched the Sixers-Lakers game there a couple years ago and – that was all before COVID and, and being there and being courtside and having a headset on was just such a cool experience, even though we didn't get to uh, come out there with the win. So, uh, yeah, super thankful to WSU for that one. And you guys talked about just some awesome memories that we'll always have, um, even long after we graduate from WSU and CN Hall. For me, I'm going to say as a pure fan, there are two that come to mind. I'm going to also say the Rutgers game. Because that was one of the few that I was able to attend as a fan this year when I wasn't covering it in some capacity. And, you know, I've been to Ranger Devils games, Ranger Penguins, Knicks Sixers. I've been to a bunch of rivalry games, professional sports. And, you know, it's just a different breed in college. And it is also a different breed, like you mentioned, Ryan, when it's the Garden State Classic, excuse me, of C.N. Hall, Rutgers, a, a rivalry that's just decades long old. And, you know, especially because it was pent up for two, two and a half, whatever years, the last time these two teams played, and it all just exploded in one game. And that was one of the loudest tournaments I've ever been to, too. And it was just so much fun, a lot of great memories from that night. And, again, I also remember Miles Kale hosting, hoisting the trophy up. Um, it was so electric. And the other game I went to as a fan, um, the one game I went to with my family, I went to the UConn overtime win at home with my dad and brother. And it was their, they went to a bunch of games I called, but a game that they actually got to sit with me with, it was just a lot of fun, um, but Heaven Hill, I believe Ronnie Jerez and Ben Harris were covering it for us, and they did an excellent job, too. I, I listened back to all their stuff. So that was just another great night. Now, in terms of covering, I'm going to – I'm kind of cheating my own question here. I'm going to say three. Um, the two road trips, I enjoyed all my road trips, um, but I'm really going to say my at Georgetown, D.C. trip and at Xavier trip. Um, so I'll start with Xavier. Like you, I'm sorry, I – 
misunderstood your your answer, Ryan. I'm doing that all with Ben Harris, who obviously is from Ohio. It was his his homecoming game, and Seen Hall just absolutely obliterated Xavier. They really did. Fans were leaving with a minute left in the game. It was awesome. It was like watching a pro sports game at that point, seeing fans leave early if their home team's getting blown out, especially because the atmosphere was so wild. Um, that was awesome. And similar to that game, my, my D.C. trip with Christian Garner, who also another homecoming game in D.C. We got to meet I got to meet his mom beforehand. Um, it was just a, an awesome environment. And that was the one game this year that was the closest I was to the court. I actually was at half court at courtside, just two seats down from Gary Cohen, a broadcaster. I know we all look up to, so that was pretty sweet. But my favorite game that I'll I'll remember for the rest of my life, no doubt, and I'll always be grateful to Heaven Hill, was the Villanova New Year's Day game. Just because it was it was my 20th birthday, um, my girlfriend, my family was there. I had friends from high school there, friends from all over came over for that game. And even though they lost similar to your Villanova game, Ryan Johnson, I thought they were going to win one, at least of the two. Um, it was just a different animal. And just because it was a New Year's Day game and it was so unprecedented because they hadn't played on New Year's Day in so long, um, just the amount of media people that were there and just the caliber of a scene hall Villanova game, it really is a different animal compared to some of their other Big East opponents. So those are my picks for my games of the year. And now let's transition just real quick before we talk about next season to some players that stood out. Um, one I want to focus on the most right now is Jared Roden because it was an up-and-down year for him, but mostly positive, in my opinion. He led the team in scoring. He was a part of the All-Biggies first team. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys like a three-headed question in one, basically. So I kind of want you to talk about his season as a whole, number one. Give me your best performance of him. And then, similar to Joe Matthews, remember this from last year, when when Sandro Mamakilishvili was going through the draft process, um, Jared Roden has met with uh, at least 10 teams so far for the NBA draft. He, he, he showed out at the combine. Um, he's been, you know, his stock's been rising for sure. He could potentially be drafted. Um, so my third and final part of the question is, do you think he will get drafted? And if so, what could he bring to an NBA team? I think I'm going to give Jared Roden a B, maybe, maybe a B minus this year. Uh, which may seem a bit low because he was first team all Big East, but he was just so inconsistent on the offensive end. I mean, one night he would shoot 50% from the field, and the next night he would shoot 18, and then it would go back up to 45, and then it would go back down to 22. It, it just felt like you never knew which Jared Roden you were going to get on a nightly basis. And I get that teams, he was the main focus of the offense, so teams were going to play him as that. And some nights he would have it, some nights he wouldn't. But it's just hard for me to give him any higher of a grade than that because of his inconsistency on the offensive end this season. He was always consistent with his effort and his defense, always looked very locked in. But it was just, it, it, it could be difficult at times to know which Jared Roden you were going to get. And I think a culmination was that in the game versus TCU. He just looked frustrated all night long. He was unable to really get it going on the offensive end, and he ended up fouling out of that game pretty early. So uh, it, it, I know it was a very disappointing way for for a great Seton Hall player to go, but uh, it, it's I, I think it's I think a B is is a fair grade for his season this year. Um, in terms of what his best performance was this year, I mean it has to be that away Xavier game <laughs> the dude dropped 30 points in a hostile environment uh, on the road he shot 57 percent from the field 
two of three from three, almost 100% from the foul line, and he shot 13 foul shots, ended up going 12 for 13. He was just automatic that night. He, he literally could not be stopped. Uh, yeah, just a great performance from him. And uh, whether or not he can get drafted, uh, hmm. I think it's a difficult question because because of that inconsistency, I feel like that's something that NBA teams look at a lot. I think if he does get drafted, he'll be a mid to low second round pick. But he does have the tools. I mean, he's got great length for a wing player. He's got a very long wingspan and he's got a lot of potential on defense. So if he makes that a staple of his game and NBA teams see that, I think it's a possibility. He is going to have to work on his jump shot a little bit, though, uh, because like I hate to harp on the inconsistencies, but it needs to be there. He's an older guy. He just graduated college. Teams aren't going to be as willing to overlook his uh, struggles on the offensive end as at times as much as they would younger players. So I think that he needs to be near perfect uh, if he wants to get drafted. And he's done a good job. Like you said, John, his, his stock is certainly rising. He's done a, a good job of, at the showcase of that he's attended so far. So I sure hope so because he was a great representative for Seton Hall as a person. He was always very courteous in press conferences and stayed out of the bad graces of the media or whatnot. So he always seemed like he would be a great representative for Seton Hall then and even at the next level too. Yeah. I mean, I thought I was, when I was heard this question, I was like, am I going to be too low? But I'm glad you agree with me that I think he deserves a B. And I also talk about one thing you didn't mention. The expectations for Jared Roden going into the season were really high. He was, I think preseason, Big East player of the year, co-player of the year. He was named to the Jerry West watch list for 20 best, 25 best shooting guards in the entire nation. So the eyes were on him. And like you said, Ryan Johnson, I just felt like there were glimmers of the brilliance we saw in especially that Xavier game, but he just never was able to pull it through. You know, he, you know, he averaged 15 points per game last year. It really didn't jump that much. He was really inconsistent the entire season. And, you know, I thought he could have – he had the ability to take that leap and really showcase himself as the guy at Seton Hall, but he, I just felt like he didn't do it. And especially after the Bryce Aiken injury, when he was kind of forced into that role, he really struggled in moments. But going to his, you know, draft profile and draft expectations, the beauty about the NBA is that if you're a wing who can – who is long, athletic, can defend well, a lot of times if you put in the effort and you show – some promise as an offensive player, you're usually you can usually get a run at a for a couple of teams. So, you know, especially with a team that's pressed up on the salary cap or the luxury tax, getting a guy like Jared Roden, if he can work on his three point shot, he'd be great value in the mid to late second round as a guy, you know, you could throw it on your bench, have you come in, play 10 to 15 minutes, play some seller defense, hit some shots. And the beauty of Jared Roden that some of these other wings that you know, who kind of are at the end of rotations that are huge in these playoff moments. He also has the ability to create his own shot, which I think could also help him stand out. So as a prospect, I think he can, if he puts in the effort, and like you said, Ryan Johnson works a bit on the inconsistencies in terms of jump shot, I think he could potentially find himself at the end of a rotation for a, you know, playoff team or potentially even a contender because guys like that, of that archetype, are so invaluable in today's NBA. And you guys bring up two good points, and I'll start with you, Ryan Johnson. I think a B to a B minus is a pretty accurate grade, um, just because we saw, again, the flashes throughout the entire season. 
but just couldn't really put it all together to, to the expectation that we had before the season. Like you mentioned, Ryan Henry. And I think at the same time, he is similar, but also a little bit different to, to Mamu from last season in his draft process. Because like you just mentioned, they both are unique players for an NBA team. And obviously we've seen Mamu playing on the Bucks. He's been uh, you know in and out of them and their G League team with the Milwaukee Herd. Uh, Wisconsin Herd, whatever the name of the third minor league team is. But he's been he's, he's had some big-time minutes for them when some of their star players have gone down. He started, I believe, one or two games. And, you no, know, he, he's been a fixture on their bench, and he, he'll, he'll bring you some offense. He, he, he's a big who can who can create offense for himself, facilitate offense as well. And then, like you mentioned with Jared Roden, a, a long, um, just a, a pretty good defender. Um, I do think his shot, like we saw for, with Cian Hall, he relied on the mid-range a ton. And for the modern-day NBA, you need to be able to knock down your threes. And through a lot of his workouts, I've seen his threes, his three-point shots looked a little bit better. But, you know, that was an issue at Cian Hall where he was relying a lot on the mid-range jumper when in the NBA you really need to have a good three-pointer to, to make it as a wing player. Um, in terms of performances, I think the performance outside of the Xavier game, which is his best, no doubt, I will say his game against Ohio State where he scored 29 points and he went 8 of 15 from the field, 11 13 from the free throw line. I think that's the Jared Brennan we thought we were going to get night in and night out for Cian Hall. Just pretty efficient shooting splits, you know, around 50%. And, you know, he took over that game despite the loss. He hit some huge shots. And I think that's what we were all expecting for most of the season. And I'll also mention the game against UConn in, in uh, overtime that he that the Pirates were able to win. Uh, he played a career high 41 minutes. He had a 15.6 rebound, just gutty performance. The biggest, one of his biggest plays of his Pirates career was stealing the ball. I believe it was Tyrese Martin um, in overtime to seal the deal. So that was just a huge legacy game from him. And so now I'm going to use the word legacy a bunch over the next couple of minutes. So we talked about Jared Roden, but we have a couple other Pirates that will not be on the team next year. And that, you know, we have just a mixed bag of a player like Miles Kale, who played five years at CN Hall. You have Ike Obiagu, who played, I believe, I guess two or three, Bryce Aiken, two, but they were injury barred. I want you guys to just give your opinions of their respective legacies that they had at Cian Hall um, in terms of, you know, Miles Kale, Ike Obiagu, Bryce Aiken, and even Jared Roden. Just that group alone, what will their legacy be when we look back at these players and teams, you know, five, ten years down the line? You know, I'll first start with uh, Miles Kale. I think he is the epitome of a just a glue guy. I mean, he could do it all essentially he wasn't spectacular at one area i think his best area was obviously defense but he was a guy you knew was always going to put 110 percent out on the court at all times i think he's going to be remembered as a seton hall legend someone who you know night in night out would always give their effort kind of like a michael lindsey who just set the record for most played games at seton hall most career play uh games in big east play and he's a guy, he's going to be a fan favorite for years to come just because you knew he was always giving out his effort, especially in that TCU game where no one really played well. I, Miles Kale was the guy who stood out, and you could tell that he was trying to put it out on the floor even when they were down 20 because he knew this was his last game at Seton, as a Seton Hall Pirate. And I think his legacy will be remembered fondly at, and be sticking out as a fan favorite. Now, going to Ike Obiagu. Uh, I wasn't always the biggest fan of Ike Obiagu. I think, you know, for his size, he should have been more dominant. But I will say this. 
his presence as a rim protector and shot blocker was one of best one of the best in the entire country. And he obviously set the record for most blocks at Seno. And I think he had a a stretch. I can't remember exactly. It was like 30, maybe 40 games of recording at least one block. So he was always good as a rim protector. But I always felt like he could have offered you more. But for some reason, he really didn't. But I think he'll be viewed more in a positive light than negative light. I'm probably a bit more critical than the average Seton Hall Pirate fan. And then for Bryce Aiken, I think his his career is just going to be a what if. You know, what if he didn't suffer that concussion or whatever it is? I mean, I just saw, I think, a week or two ago that he was just back out on the court after a five-month-long concussion. That is just absurd to think about. And he had so many great moments and glimpses into his brilliance. But... He could just never stay healthy. And it goes back to the extensive career he had at Harvard where he just basically got ran into the ground. But I think Bryce Hagan's going to be one of the biggest what-ifs in Seton Hall history because if he was able to stay healthy, who knows what could have happened to the Pirates last season and this season. And so that's how I'll remember those four guys. And it really signals the end of this era. You know, Kevin Willard's gone. A lot of the guys from that you know, 2020 team that that 2020 COVID year are going to be gone now. And so I feel like that era is completely gone and we're starting fresh. And I think these guys will be remembered in a positive light. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add. I, I pretty much agree with what Hendog said right there. I think he characterized them all pretty well. Um, the only thing I'd have to add about Miles Kale is he's the greatest Seton Hall basketball player in history from Delaware, at least until... Lauren Park Lane finishes her career, so uh, we'll we'll have to tally it up all all then. But uh, yeah, he was a great glue guy, like Ryan said. Most games played in both Seton Hall and Big East history, um, and it's funny because he was pretty inconsistent to start his career, at least on the offensive end. But he really developed into a guy where you knew what you could expect from him night in night out this season. I think he was the most consistent player this season for Seton Hall. And that comes with age. That comes with the leadership that he gained over the season. So certainly remembering him in a positive light. Um, Aiko Biagu, I, I think he could have been – there's a lot of potential there on the offensive end. And I'm sure we see NBA teams looking at him now. The Hornets, they just had a workout with him. So I'm sure that they see it as well. But one of the most dominant rim protectors I've ever seen, uh, especially at the college level, passing Samuel Dallenbear for most blocks in Seton Hall history. Very impressive stuff. Uh, leading the Big East last year uh, in blocks. Very, very dominant around the rim on defense. And then Bryce Aiken. It's a shame. Injuries really hindered him at Seton Hall. Uh, his whole, our freshman year, uh, his first year at Seton Hall, he sat out most of the season because of injuries. He only played here and there. And, uh, he had a couple. He had one good game. I think it was against Creighton, where he really showed out. Uh, but other than that, he didn't really look that special. And then this year, he just showed how special of a basketball player he is. I mean, he was so good to start the year, and a five-month-long concussion ending the season is it's it's really disappointing uh, for me. And obviously, nothing that he could control is so. Just a huge what if. Uh, I'm sure that every Seton Hall fan will look back on those memories of him 
knocking down te- Texas and Rutgers fondly. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think any of them really go out in bad blood with the Seton Hall faithful. Uh, yeah, I think they're all going to be remembered in a positive light. And I'll just add one more thing to what you guys said about the what-ifs of Bryce Aiken. I'll always think of the what-ifs of the, the, the 2020 season where it was Miles Powell, Sandra Mamakilashvili, Jared Roden, Miles Kale, uh, you and I go Biago, that, that team um, was a part of their legacy, that that team, they were saying, could have even made an NCAA title run. Um, so, again, only – Nothing but positives for for every for every one of these players we mentioned. Ike Obiago, just a feared rim protector. Miles Kale, the glue guy, just a, a great decorated scene hall career. Bryce Aiken showed so many flashes and still gave the Pirates a bunch of memories that they'll will always have as as scene hall fans. I mean, now keeping with the legacy theme, we need to have one question about head coach Kevin Willard, who's now coaching in Maryland. And real quick, before I ask you guys just about his legacy, I'm going to read some stats that he had. Um, he obviously led the Pirates to twenty six to the twenty sixteen Big East Tournament Championship, and twenty twenty Big East Regular Season Championship. Um, he got a Seton Hall to four straight NCAA tournament appearances from twenty sixteen and nineteen. He led the Pirates to the program's first tournament win since two thousand and four. He ranked as high as number eight in the national top twenty five polls. Um, he had just a bunch of players that he helped develop over the four years: Miles Powell, Isaiah Whitehead, Angel Delgado. The Mamu, Jared Roden, the list goes on and on. So both of you guys give your honest opinions about Kevin Willard, who, again, this year was under fire just the entire year, but not just this year, his entire collective career as a Seton Hall Pirate. I can understand the criticisms against Kevin Willard um, because he came across as kind of uh, a cold dude. I mean, he, he was always very blunt. Uh when talking to people, he didn't really interact with the fans all that much at Seton Hall. Um, but he should be the, remembered as the guy that put Seton Hall back on the map. I, I mean, before Kevin Willard, I think Bobby, was it Bobby Gonzalez? Was he the coach before Kevin Willard? And Seton Hall was just in shambles. I, I didn't know the last time we had a, a winning season in the Big East before Kevin Willard. I don't know the last time we made the tournament. Uh, before Kevin Willard, it might have been in 2000 with Shaheen Holloway. I don't, I don't know exactly, but the program was just in a bad spot, and it didn't look like it was going anywhere anytime soon. And Kevin Willard turned that around. He made Seton Hall a perennial, back into a perennial NCAA tournament, uh, at least bid. He he got us back in the NCAA tournament and consistently. Winning that big 2016 Big East title was huge. I know that Seton Hall pretty consistently came up short in the big games when he was there. But he's got to be at least remembered for the guy that put Seton Hall back on the map, put South Orange back on the map as a place that competitive basketball exists. We are still a good program because of Kevin Willard. He has to be given huge credit for that, and uh, I don't see it any other way. Kevin Willard's legacy is going to be bittersweet at Seton Hall. There's going to be a couple of things he's remembered for. I'll start with the positives. He did really revitalize this program. The last time they made it before Kevin Willard was back in 06 with Lewis Orr. So they didn't even make it under Bobby Gonzalez. And he had a lot of successful players under his program. Miles Powell obviously being the most obvious. But you have Romero Gill, Quincy McKnight, Sandra Mamakalashvili. Jared Roden, Miles Kale, the list can go on. 
But his legacy is going to be bittersweet for two reasons. One, he never got the chance. They never got the chance to play the 2020 NCAA tournament. Now, they were going in. I, it was a three seed. But we don't know what happened. They could have gone a deep tournament run. They could have also lost in the first round. And I think he really, that's a defined moment because if he does go on a big tournament run, he's probably not gone. He's probably still the coach at Seton Hall. But again, we don't know what's going to happen. And also, the way he went out in that TCU game, I think that's going to put a really bad mark on some Seton Hall fans because this was a, I wouldn't say, I would say a legacy-defining moment for him. He had the chance to you know, potentially make a tournament run. The team had the talent. And the way they came out and then the stuff that came out after the fact about him basically giving his job to Shaheen Holloway, him packing his bags to go to Maryland, it's going to put a bad taste in people's mouth. So that's why I say it's bittersweet. And I have a good comparison for him because I also know this coach well. He reminds me a lot of Doc Rivers, who is the current coach of the 76ers. They're both guys who I think are really good at building a program, but they can't get it to the next level. You know, Doc Rivers, we saw what he did with the Orlando or the Orlando Magic in the early 2000s with Trace McGray. They, he, they got to the playoffs a couple of times. Those Clippers teams, uh, especially after uh, Blake, CP, DeAndre, all of them left, they made it to the playoffs still with their best player being Lou Will and Tobias Harris, and they actually took the Golden State Warriors to six games. But when the pressure's on his team and he has the talent to succeed, he just hasn't come up big. And now that 2020 season is a big question mark because we don't know what would have happened. But I really think he's a guy who can rebuild a program, but he can't get them to the next level. Yeah, you guys perfectly summed up, I think, Kevin Willard's legacy that, you know, I think it hurt in the TCU regard that that was the last memory we'll have of him and sort of the recency bias component that people will be like oh well he mentally i guess mentally checked out because he's ready going to, to maryland like a day or two later but this was like a guy like you mentioned ryan johnson he, he took the scene hall program to, to another tier um he was a great recruiter um cr- some credits to him and i still think about all the time how great of a non-conference scheduler he was um he's still doing it in maryland i saw they're playing ucla already so i think he always had a very good non-conference schedule for the Pirates year in and year out. He made for a lot of great memories, including this year. Um, he helped develop some just great scene Hall legends. And and Ryan Henry, like you said, I'm gonna this this is supposed to be harsh, but I'm trying to say that the the Pirates program was like a tier maybe C or D whatever before him. He brought it up to like a tier B plus by the end of it. And I think Pirates fans just got a little bit impatient towards the end that he couldn't bring them up to an A minus or an A like. Because I'm thinking of an A as like a Villanova or, you know, even like a Creighton in terms of make of making NCAA tournament runs. Because this was a, a team that made the NCAA tournament almost every year of his of his era as coach. But they just couldn't get out of the first round, it seemed like. They had one tournament win. And that's what people were frustrated with. But at the same time, you should be grateful that, you know, there were plenty of teams in the Big East. And there still are plenty of teams that are not even making the tournament. And they're not at the level of seeing Hall. And being able to just have, you know, just bring in great recruits, even from last year. I know we're going to talk about about the Brandon Weston class of bringing in those three guys. I know they're, they're all gone now, but just, you know, forming great relationships with his players. And I think just nothing but positives, uh, again, for his collective Seton Hall career, despite a couple of roadblocks along the way. Which now brings it into the next era of Seton Hall that people 
probably have been the most excited, maybe even program history going into uh, a tenure as head coach in Shaheen Holloway, a Seaton Hall guy who was an assistant coach, a player, just led St. Peter's to the Elite Eight of the NCAA tournament. This is a guy that's going to have huge expectations as the guy that can bring Seaton Hall to the Tier A level of some of these programs in the Big East and the rest of the country. So my question to you guys is, just there's still a lot that remains to be seen about what Shane Holloway could bring, at least for year number one. Because it's a new team. He's out of St. Peter's. He's in his hardest coaching job yet. Um, the team, there's a lot of mixture of, of, of a ton of new faces, a couple of old guys, of course, that are back as well. Um, but where do you see the future of the program with Shaheen Holloway in terms of maybe a floor, a ceiling? What do you think he's going to do to the culture and just what this team is going to be? And do you think they'll reach that tier rate level? I'm really excited for what the future holds with the Pirates under Shaheen Holloway. He seems like a coach who players really want to play for, and he seems, obviously I'm not in the locker room, but he seems like a much more relatable coach and guide to players than Kevin Willard did. No offense to Kevin Willard. It's just the vibe he gets off. I mean, if you look at his introductory press conference, everyone from St. Peter's was there. And, you know, I don't I don't see, I wouldn't see the guys going to Maryland. I know it's a farther commute, but hypothetically, they're not going to follow, or they're not going to, you know, go to his introductory press conference and new, uh, new college the the players at st peter's really bought into shaheen holloway and their system and you could tell these you know they had some talented players but making an elite eight you know they definitely overachieved and i really think you know the culture hill set of you know toughness he emphasized toughness and you know kind of that grit mentality that people love and it will epitomize big east basketball and i remember listening to um he was on the podcast with Steven Jackson and um, Matt Barnes, All the Smoke, I think a couple of months ago. It was a great episode with him on it. If you want to listen to it after you listen to this. But, uh, you know, he, the way he was, like, talking about, you know, the culture he tries to set and the attitude he wants to bring, it's really a positive sign if you're a Pirates fan. And, I mean, look at what he's done. He brought in the Davis brothers. He bringing in Ndefu from St. Peter's, who I think is, you know, I think he's going to be great or at least – He's going to be an interesting fit next to this guy's. And then look at who they're going after. Amani Bates, Scotty Middleton. These are high-class recruits. You know, as great as Seton Hall is, in most times, they wouldn't be going after these kind of guys. And they're in their top fives, their top tens. So they're at least getting consideration. And I really think the culture Shane Hall is going to set is going to be huge for this team. Now, is it a guarantee that he's going to be successful? No, it's not. I mean, he could easily do what Kevin Willer did. But... I think the potential is just so much higher for this team, and I'm really excited to see what he brings because I really think he's going to bring a culture of toughness, grit, and, you know, that Big East basketball that we all love. Yeah, I, too, am very, very excited for Shaheen Holloway. I mean, you see what he did to this St. Peter's program. You know, St. Peter's is literally one of the hardest places to win in college basketball. It doesn't have a lot of funding. It's not in a great location. I mean, it's it's in Newark. Not a lot of players want to go and go to college in Newark. It's just a fact. I mean, there's far more enticing locations out there, and it's in the MAC, which is a mid-major conference. Like those three combined, it makes St. Peter's a very, very hard place to win. And in just four seasons, he brought them not only their first NCAA tournament win where they beat Kentucky, but he brought them to the Elite Eight. 
Okay, like that is so impressive to me. Now, granted, that could just be a magical run. The, the vacation is over for Shaheen Holloway. He needs to prove that he can win right now, and he needs to do it because this Seton Hall team is much more talented than that St. Peter's team. I get that Casey and Defo is coming over, like you mentioned, Ryan, but the Davis brothers, you got the Harris brothers, you got Kadari Richmond, who was touted as a potential NBA prospect this year, but he's coming back. I mean, this Seton Hall team is loaded with talent, and combined with Shaheen Holloway, they need to win, and, and I think they're going to. And But even more, I'm even more excited by the prospect of recruiting, like you touched on, Ryan. Like the fact that we are in Imani Bates' top five when he was transferring, like that never would have happened under Kevin Willard. I can guarantee that never would have happened under under Kevin Willard. The fact that we're, Scotty Middleton is considering coming to us, I mean, that that is huge. If we got a five star, I mean, that'd be a, our, our biggest recruit since Isaiah Whitehead. I think, and I I don't know how many five stars Kevin Lloyd recruited, but that's the only one that I can remember off the top of my head. I remember Brandon Weston was the highest ranked recruit that we had gotten since Isaiah Whitehead. So, yeah, I, I'm super excited for Shaheen Holloway, but he needs to come out and win. He needs to come out and prove it because these high expectations, they're going to fall back on him if he doesn't end up winning. I, I can't, granted, he needs a little bit of time to get acclimated with the program. It's only his first season. I don't know how much we. it would be fair of us to expect from the Seton Hall team. But me personally, I, I've got high hopes for the coming year. Yeah, I, the sky's the limit, I think, for what Coach Ian Holloway is going to bring to Seton Hall. And I think at least for a year one, the Pirates fans should almost temper their expectations just a little bit because to, to expect an elite eight run in his first year as head coach and his toughest you know, coaching challenge yet. I think it could be a little bit premature just because, it, again, it, it's a completely different ball game coaching St. Peter's opposed to Seton Hall. It's just a plain fact. And, you know, the Big East basketball, he played in it. He knows how difficult it will be. There's so many great teams in the Big East this year, I mean, even more than last year. Like, there's just so many good teams. And there's gonna, they're going to be absolute dog fights when they play this year. Um, but my question to you guys, now that we've talked about Shaheen Holloway, um, wrapping wrap things up just a little bit, um, with some of the players for next season. You mentioned Ryan Johnson. I think Kadari Richmond is the biggest wild card for his success in year number one, at least. Because, like you mentioned, he chose to stay at Seton Hall another year. Um, he had a pretty solid year last year. You know, a lot of ups and downs. He had a lot asked of him when Bryce Aiken went down. Like you mentioned, Ryan Henry as the primary ball handler. But, you know, just an all-around, you know, he scores. Um, we used to work on his jump shot probably a little bit more this season. Um, but an excellent distributor of the basketball, a great rebounder, excellent on defense, has so many tools. Um, do you think that Shaheen Holloway will help, you know, this former Syracuse guard develop into a true NBA prospect? I know it's it's hard to tell at this point in the offseason, but just from what we saw last year and what we saw Shaheen Holloway do with the St. Peter's guards, at least, and him being a former guard himself, do you think he'll bring him to that that elite level? Absolutely, I do. I, I think Kadari Richmond, I think all the intangibles are there for him already. I mean, we saw how much he developed last year alone. He started out the season, he kept getting in foul trouble because he was used to playing super aggressive defense and, and jumping passing lanes in that Syracuse zone. And he developed over the season. He stopped getting into foul trouble. He started adapting more to man-to-man. And he really started sitting back and, and playing great on-ball defense. We saw with the press, he learned how to break the press a bit better. Uh, against St. John's, they really took advantage of him in the backcourt, not really being able to deal with it. 
He, he was getting sped up, turning the ball over, making bad passes. Marquette, the next game, did the same thing. Over the season, we saw him adjust, and teams couldn't do that to him anymore. And you bring in a former high-level guard. I know Kevin Willard played uh, college ball, too. I think it was at Iona. But uh, Shaheen Holloway played Big East basketball. He led this team to a, a Sweet 16 run. This is a guy that brought Doug Eddard to national recognition. And that's no disrespect to Doug Eddard, but he is not Kadari Richmond. He does not have the skills that Kadari Richmond does. I get that he's got a little bit of an awkward jumper right now, but it's serviceable. He has a little bit of a hitch in his shot, but he can fix it. He can easily fix that. And if he can fix that, I don't see there's why there's any reason that Kadari Richmond isn't an NBA guard. He's got all the intangibles already. Now he just needs to develop the tangibles a little bit more. Yeah, and I mean, I think... Shaheen Holloway is the perfect coach to mentor Kadari Richmond. I know their games are a little bit different, but you you know, the toughness and greatness that Kadari Richmond brings on the offensive end, you know, Shaheen, that's going to bounce off Shaheen Holloway. And like you said, I think Kadari Richmond is really the biggest wild card for this team because he has the NBA, you know, prospect potential. I mean, his ball handling ability. I mean, we obviously know of his defense and his ability to attack the rim. And he's also, I think, 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. So he's bigger than most guards in the NBA. So he has the height going for him, too. And if he can, you know, improve upon his play and kind of refine it a bit more, I could definitely see him not just becoming a NBA prospect, but potentially a first-round prospect. I know he's a junior, so the age is a bit of concern. But he definitely has all the tools and intangibles. He just needs to put it all together. And I think Shaheen Holloway will really help in that aspect. Yeah, you guys did some excellent analysis there, and I think that there's a very, very strong potential that he could be the highest draft pick out of CN Hall in their program um, history, potentially, if he's able to unlock all these tools like you guys both mentioned. And having a, a, one of the greatest CN Hall guards in program history as his coach will definitely help as well. And even like we mentioned with Doug Edder, doing something like that for a player that is a good you know, college basketball player, like Kadari Richmond, I'm sure, is looking for NBA, you know, potentially start him someday. Um, and Sheen Holloway was just, a, I think, a perfect fit for him at this point in time. Um, so my next question, again, we're wrapping things up, just talking a little bit about next season. Um, I want you guys to give me one player for next season from two categories that you're most excited about. One non-freshman that's coming in that was a transfer um, that you're most excited to see in a Pirates uniform, and then also a freshman because they also have um, some big freshmen now this year. Obviously, Jameer Harris, Jaquan Harris, his brother. Um, uh, Jaquan Sanders, just some very interesting pieces to say the least. Um, but just give one non-freshman at least, and then one freshman that you're most excited to see and see in Hall Blue and White. Uh, so I think for a non-freshman, the mo- player I'm most excited for is Casey Indefo. I think he'll be either the starting four or the starting five for this Pirates team. He really should be. I mean, defensively, this guy's a stud. He's as good of a rim protector as Ike Obiagu. He led the country in blocks, I think, his junior season. But he has so much more mobility and versatility, which means the big thing I had with Ike Obiago on the defensive end was that he really was limited on, like, guarding the perimeter and his foot speed. Casey Indefu is an absolute athlete. He's a great rim protector, but on the offensive end, he had so much more, too. I mean, he averaged almost two assists per game, which for a big man is pretty impressive. So you can involve actions with handoffs. You know, if you do a short roll, he can dish it out to the corner. If he get you can work something off the elbow, and if he gets an offensive rebound, he can kick it out. I mean, I think he is 
the prototypical big man in terms of, you know, rim running, athleticism, all that is all there. And he also has a bit of a shot. It does need some work, but there's some promise there. And then in terms of freshman, I'll go with I'll go Jaquan Harris. I like him as a shot creator. I mean, local kid playing with his brother. I think that's going to be cool to watch. I'm not entirely sure how much runtime he will get, but I think it will just be cool seeing him on the team. But I'm really excited for what Casey and Defo can do, especially since he's already been acclimated to the Shaheen Holloway system. Yeah, I definitely think Casey and Defo is a good shout, but just to spotlight someone different, uh, I'm going to go with DeAndre Davis uh, from Louisville. Uh, I think this is a guy that can create his own shot. He, he didn't get the most touches at Louisville, but I think that he can really be a nice piece in this Seton Hall team. They got a lot of wing spots open. Now that Miles Kale and Jared Roden are both gone, that leaves two spart- starting spots open. A lot of the guys on the bench have cleared out. They don't really have a whole lot of wings right now. I think DeAndre Davis can be a guy that can fill that role, can get a lot of touches, even if he doesn't start. So uh, I'm definitely excited for him coming as as a transfer. And I'm also going to go with Jaquan Harris again, another guy that can create his own shot, very athletic guard. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, how he plays with his brother. Granted, I'm not sure how much time, uh, playing time these freshmen are going to get. It tends in the Big East that – these younger guys tend to defer to, to the older guys. These coaches tend to defer to the older guys in terms of playing time, which is understandable. But if he does play, I, I think he'll definitely show some potential this coming season. Yeah, the, this this new wave of Pirates, there's so many just elite parts, I just think, to this rotation that they're going to have. Casey and Defo, I think of being a, another great interior presence, like an Ike Obiago, even, even an Angel, Angel Delgado, excuse me. Now that he's to the Big East level, playing against some Big East competition going to elevate his game, going against some of the best offensive players in the entire country in terms of conference play. Um, I'll pick a different player than both of you guys just because there's so many, and we're actually even missing some. I'm going to go with Alamir Dawes, the, the Clemson transfer, who's from Newark. He's a Newark kid who went to the Patrick School for high school. And this is another guy that I guess reminds me of Jameer Harris last year when he came to Seen Hall. Just an absolute lethal shooter. Um, but the difference is he, this guy you know, playing for Clemson was playing, you know, ACC basketball compared to Jameer Harris at American, uh, a, a little bit of a weaker conference. And, you know, he shot 42% from the field in 2021. He shot almost 40% from three in that same year as well. This guy is just a great shooter. It gives him another source of offense just outside of the people that we're going to expect from this year. And I think he play some key minutes for, for Seen Hall as well. And in terms of freshmen, I'm very excited for Jaquan Harris. But I also got to give a shout out to Jaquan Sanders as well who I believe he was the one, right, that picked St. John's originally as his school and then flip-flopped to go to C.N. Hall back when Kevin Willard was still the head coach. Um, he's a guy from the Bronx, another guard um, who can bring a lot in terms of shooting and ball handling. I think he's going to be great in the coming years for C.N. Hall once he's able to develop fully. Um, again, for Shaheen Holloway, another great C.N. Hall guard that can help develop him, Jaquan Harris, Kadari Richmond. The, their guard play is, I think, going to be one of the best in the entire Big East for sure. Which now leads me into my last question of this episode of Pirate Recap. So the Seen Hall team, I would have asked what your favorite game is going to be for this season, but we only know a few in terms of non-conference. They're going to be playing the defending champs, Kansas, um, at Allen Fieldhouse, uh, I believe, in early December, December 1st it might be. They're going to play St. Peter's for Shaheen Holloway. They're going to play Rutgers on the road now. 
um, at the Jersey Mike's Arena, the rack, whatever it's called now. So that's going to be fun. The Big East slate is the same. Where do you see this team in 22 to 23 in terms of a potential record, um, their floor, their ceiling? Now that we we know what the, the piece of this team is going to be, but do you think they're going to put it together this season? Do you think Shaheen Holloway is going to have another electric Cinderella run, but now with, with, with better talent? Um, what are your expectations for this season, and do you think he'll he'll be able to live up for it as his first year as Seton Hall head coach? Well, I'm certainly coming in with high hopes for the season. I mean, we we've talked about the talent that this team is going to have, and it's it's superior to what he had at St. Peter's. Again, no disrespect to the St. Peter's uh, program or the players there, but this is a better team than what he had, and we saw what he did with that St. Peter's team. Now the question is, are these Seton Hall guys going to buy in? like the St. Peter's players did, because quite clearly the St. Peter's players bought into Shaheen Shaheen Holloway and his system, and it paid off in a big way. And if Seton Hall can do the same, I don't see why we couldn't go far. That being said, I don't think it's fair to expect a huge, like, Final Four run or something like that in the beginning, uh, in his first year as head coach of Seton Hall. I don't think it's fair to him. An NCAA tournament win would certainly be nice. Uh, I haven't seen one of those from Seton Hall. So uh, it, it would certainly be nice if we got out of the first round. Um, but I, I'd say that's my goal. That That is my goal for Seton Hall in the coming season, getting out of the first round of the NCAA tournament no matter where we end up. And if we go further, hey, I, I certainly will not be complaining. Let me, let me say that. I, I want us to go as far as we can, but... I want us to be fair to Coach Holloway in his first season as head coach, too. Yeah, and I mean, I obviously, you know, you're rebuilding an entire program. You're losing a lot of the old guard, and you're kind of – and the roster construction is – they're obviously talented players, but there's a lot of disparity towards the guards and not as much towards the wings and the big men. So you're going to have to find some time, you know, what roster – what rotations work best, what line of constructions work, and which ones don't, and then implementing the new system. But I really think what the talent on this team – I could see a similar record, like 18 to 20 wins. But also the big thing to keep track of, the Big East is a huge question mark. And I think it's one of like the most interesting years in maybe conference history. Jay Wright is finally gone. Kyle Neptune steps in, the coach from Fordham. He was there when they won their two national championships. But he, they're obviously dealing with him and now at the helm. Sean Miller, I believe, went to Xavier, the guy who was from Arizona who, when they had DeAndre Ayton. He's now in the fold. You know, We saw what problems can do. Can they replicate their success? We don't know. I think Dan Hurley from UConn's on the hot seat. They've shown regular season success, but not anything in terms of the postseason. So there's going to be a lot of question marks in this conference this year. And it's really up. It's it's as open, really, as any year I could really think of. But I think, you know, 18 and 20 wins, especially with the talent on this roster. Like Ryan Johnson said, a tournament win would be nice, but I'm not going to temper my expectations that high. I really think this is going to be a rebuilding year, despite all the talent they have. But I am excited to see how this season develops. Yeah, and the Big East, I think as a whole this year, you mentioned it, Ryan Henry. I mean, with Jay Wright gone, I mean, Villanova is in a very interesting spot because will Count Epton bring this exact same brand of winning and success that Jay Wright had, or is it going to take him a couple of years? And again, similar to what Shaheen Holloway, like, will it be right away? Will it be a little bit? I think it's going to take at least a season or two to just, you know, get used to everything. Um, but anything is possible when you have so much talent on your team as well. 
but it's going to make for an, an, an exciting season next year. I think just going right to the Kansas game, the fact that they already scheduled a game against the defending champs, you know, I think the sky's the limit for the rest of Shaheen uh, Holloway's tenure uh, as at Seen Hall, however long that may be. But that will wrap up this edition of Pirate Recap. Once again, big shout out to Ryan Henry, Ryan Johnson for their time and their excellent analysis today. I'm Jonathan Height, and be sure to listen to the rest of our Pirate Recap episodes. We'll be talking about the Seen Hall women's basketball team, baseball, soccer, every sport we got. You can find it here on WSU Sports. But for now, signing off. Have a great day.